the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott joined Libby Snymer this past Monday, shortly after announcing increased funding for a new treatment for essential tremors. Approximately 4% of Ontarians over the age of 65 are living with this condition, which causes uncontrollable shaking, which can make it difficult to complete simple tasks like getting dressed. It's a modest move that will help an additional 72 patients and came weeks after the news that 400 administrative workers will lose their jobs and following a cabinet shuffle, which split the health ministry into two. One of the main campaign promises of the governing Ford Tories was ending hallway medicine. Libby also asked the health minister about progress in this area after discussing the new funding for essential tumors. This is a, a, a developed in Ontario new treatment for people with the essential tremors. It's called um, high intensity focused ultrasound waves, uh, called HIFU. Um, but it's doing wonderful things for people with these tremors. We're, with the funding that we've added, $1.4 million, it'll fund an additional um, treatments for 72 more patients who um, don't respond well to medications. And this treatment uses the uh, basics of the MRI with a specialized helmet that's been developed where they can focus lasers on specific parts of the brain that will um, basically cauterize the, uh, the areas where the tremors are coming from and eliminate them. So this actually is uh, it's, it's a wonderful made-in-Ontario solution to a, a problem that's worldwide, and it's something that we are certainly very proud to support and helps to uh, reduce the hallway health care that we're hearing about because this is a treatment where people can go in, they're uh, fully conscious, uh, and they can get up following the treatment and walk out of the hospital. So we don't have people undergoing surgery with the uh, complications and, and threats that that can pose to them personally, but it also is helpful economically in the sense that you can provide these treatments and people don't need a hospital bed to, uh, to uh, take advantage of it. How are you we doing in general at eliminating hallway medicine? Well, we've, we're putting into place a number of um, procedures, treatments, uh, whatever, um, in order to uh, reduce hallway health care. Part of it is in developing further capacity. So we have pledged $27 billion over 10 years for hospital infrastructure spending. Part of it is in developing more long-term care beds. We have also made significant progress on that as well because we know that there are um, thousands of people in Ontario hospitals now who are alternate level of care. They don't need to be in the hospital, but there isn't anywhere else for them to go right now. No long-term care, and we don't have the home care facilities developed to a point where they can receive them at home. So we're putting that in place to uh, increase the flow through the hospitals and get people to where they want to be, hopefully home. That takes a lot of time, getting long-term care beds on stream. I mean, how, what's the timeline on that? 
Well, some of it is new construction, and that will take uh, probably two years to get some of those places in place. However, there are also some uh, great um, projects that are being worked on right now between hospitals and home care in order to be able to get some of the people who would you would expect might need to go into long-term care, that if they are given the proper rehabilitation treatments and so on and staying active, that they can go from hospital to home with the right home care supports in place. Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott in conversation with Libby Snymer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The first phase of the new Air Passengers Bill of Rights went into effect this past Monday. It requires airlines to compensate passengers up to $2,400 if they're bumped from flights and $2,100 if their luggage is lost. It also mandates clear communication to passengers about their rights and provides timely updates for delays or cancellations. Ariel Roy is a lawyer at Flight Claim. John McKenna is the president and CEO of the Air Transport Association of Canada. They joined Libby to discuss the new Air Passengers Bill of Rights. Well, there are some good things in this legislation for sure. I think it's important that uh, the that passengers know what's what they're entitled to and how to how to access it. In the past, each company had to table its own tariffs, in other words, its own set of rules on how they would compensate people in given circumstances, but they were different for every airline. But that was the law. Uh, now the law is different, and we don't disagree with the principles of law. Where we have issues are a number of things. So the foremost is that the government's, is rush, the government's rushing to push this through because of an electoral agenda. There are many things that need to be worked out yet, sorted out yet, and that's not being done, and it's going to lead to problems a lot down the line. The, the intent of it is good. Nobody disagrees with that. Uh, they're ramming it down because they feel that they feel pressured for an, ag- an election agenda. And we're saying, guys, you got to let us give us a chance to work out the details and the court and the kinks of this before you implement it. And that's not what happened. So we're working, we're working with government to be compliant within the timelines that we've been given. We're, I mean, we're just saying that's short. And that's why IATA went to court on this. They saying they asked for they went to the court uh, petitioned the court to suspend these rules because many things had not been worked out clearly. What falls clearly in the responsibility of the airlines as compared to other actors in, in aviation like controllers, ground crew people, airports, a lot of these things need to be worked out and not rushed through. And that's our complaint. Also, people feel that this is not going to have an impact on the cost of flying in Canada, which is totally ridiculous. Uh, in Europe, cost of compensating passengers is now the second or the third highest expenditure for any airline. And if you think that doesn't have an impact on prices, well, you're living in some, I don't know where, where you're living, but it's, it's unreasonable to think that. Uh, so, our, uh, our consumer advocate, Gabor Lukash, said if you read the fine print, it's actually going to be very difficult for anyone to collect that money. Well, I don't want to comment on Mr. what Mr. Lukács has said. He's been advocating for years, and I don't think anything airlines or government can do will satisfy him. So the government has to find a fine line between what the consumer needs and what is actually can be done properly by the airlines and, and manageable. So I'm not too concerned by his comments. 
Right now, we are going to Ariel Roy, who is a lawyer at Flight Claim. Do you agree with Gabor Lukash, who says the fine print is so stringent that really uh, nobody is going to be able, or almost no one is going to be able to actually claim the, the compensation? Yeah, the conditions to get the compensation are really, really uh, slim. Uh, the air passenger uh, will have to uh, prove uh, many things to get the compensation. So uh, on that point, we agree with Mr. Lucas. Uh, so has this really helped in any way? Uh, it helps a little bit. It's, it's sure that uh, having a regulation is uh, better than having nothing. But uh, the airline uh, can uh, get any reason for the delay or, com- or your flight cancellation and do not have to uh, give you any uh, compensation. It's really hard for the passenger that don't have the information about the cancellation or the delay to say, uh, oh, what you're saying to me, it's not accurate. Uh, please uh, revise it. Uh, they can you tell you a little bit uh, everything and anything. So that's uh, the, the part that we uh, have a little bit of difficulty with the regulation. What are your other issues with it, with this whole regulation? It's really the, the great part of the regulation, uh, the responsibility of the airline that is not clearly clearly um, point point out uh, the, the the fact that the passenger has only one year to uh, ask for a compensation when it will be uh, in uh, in effect on December 15. It's really like it's more. Uh, regulation that is really friendly with the airline because they it, it limited their responsibility instead of uh, giving more rights to the passengers. Lawyer Ariel Rawa at Flight Claim and John McKenna, President and CEO of the Air Transport Association of Canada. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Donald Trump's racist tweets about the four American Congresswomen was the big newsmaker in the U.S. this past week, but they also made news around the globe. Other world leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, were asked about the U.S. president's comments that the four, three of whom were born in America, should go back to the broken countries from where they came. Trudeau condemned the comments while emphasizing the importance of diversity here in Canada. Also in political news this week, a new Corbett communications poll gives the Trudeau Liberals a strong lead over the Conservatives in vote-rich Ontario. While 60% of Ontario voters say they believe Doug Ford's provincial government is corrupt. To discuss the political news of the week, Libby Snymer was joined by John Corbett of Corbett Communications, conservative strategist John Capobianco, and liberal strategist Charles Byrd, starting first with Trudeau's criticism of Trump's racist tweets. He obviously had to strike a fine balance, as it were, between uh, the uh, appropriate outrage that President Trump's remarks uh, likely warranted versus uh, the singular nature of our trading relationship with the United States and the importance of preserving that. Um, It's interesting that the the president has been openly accused of being a racist. It's been a while since we've seen that. But playing the race card in American politics is certainly nothing new. And the real question is, 
to to what effect? Um, because there's, I think there's a lot of Republicans who are very concerned that the president's uh, remarks go beyond the pale and will drive away a very important segment of Republican vote, which tends to be suburban, higher educated uh, women. And that uh, could prove to be highly problematic for the president down the road. John Capobianco, uh, was it a good idea for Justin Trudeau to comment on this? I don't think Prime Minister Trudeau needed to, to weigh into this. Uh, I don't think he was expected to weigh into this. I think he decided to weigh into this because I think it's something that he obviously felt that he needed to. Uh, after uh, Theresa, uh, Theresa May, um, the British Prime Minister, weighed into it, I think he uh, was sort of the next world leader to uh, to jump in, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I think Charles is right. There's a fine line between, you know, there's a lot of issues that he's got to deal with, with a pretty volatile pr- president here, not least of which are... are um, the new NAFTA, um, but just a, a whole host of, of things. And also, I think he's been trying to get the USA to to work with China to get our uh, well. Exactly. Released. I was I was wondering about that because that seems to be he flew over to the states. Trump promised that he would intervene. No sign that that's happened, but we well, don't know. But again, and, you know, is this poking the bear? Like, is this something that you know at a time when you need the U.S. and you're you're relying on them on on some very key issues? Is this something that he needed to say something that that would inflame and probably, uh, you know, get the ire of the president and, and work against us. So I don't know. I don't think he needed to do it. I don't think he should have done it. But, um, you know, nobody likes to have, you know, foreign governments uh, intervene in, in domestic issues. John, do you agree? Given Justin's positioning, the way he presents himself, I think it would have been uh, noticed had he not spoken out against this. I think it's something that, that, that falls very comfortably inside his wheelhouse that uh that he is um he's a defender of of of, of, of diversity of of uh of, of, of uh, feminism and i think in both those respects the president was really getting out of line and i think uh, i think justin's justin's voters and his partisans expect him to behave that way before we go john corbett if you were giving andrew Shear advice for the rest of the summer what would you say um, I'd say see if you can uh, promote a caucus revolt in Ontario. No one bought the idea. No one's buying the idea that Ontario is broke and has to cut services. You know, the majority opinion is that it's a wealthy province. Um, almost everyone believes in climate change and most support the carbon tax. So his whole central central point about being against the climate uh, tax, the, the carbon tax, is not going to do very much for him. Um, no one thinks Ford cares about people like them. Only like 20% believe that Ford cares about people like them. So there goes the whole government for the people um, plank in the platform. And um, they all remember the booing uh, episode at, at Nathan Phillips Square. And most people blame that on his personal unpopularity and the unpopularity of his policies. So here's a guy who... The public is just not buying his story anymore. Okay. Everything he ran on, carbon tax, uh, a a broke province that has to cut back, uh, uh, climate change, you know, that he's doing a government for the people. Um, These things, people aren't buying them anymore. Before the record, I don't believe any of that. But anyway, that's uh, that's for for John and his polls to to say. But... (laughs) Well, I believe all of it, Libby. Let me take that perfectly (laughs) clear. (laughs) 
Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, John Corbett of Corbett Communications, Polling and Market Research, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, our Tuesday strategy panel. You're listening to the best to fight back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. During the hottest days of summer, we are already talking about the coming flu season. The cause for concern is the news coming out of Australia, where it is winter. Flu-related hospitalizations are three times what is normal for this time of year, and there have been more than 200 deaths so far, according to that country's Department of Health. Ontario's governing PCs have already ordered 300,000 more doses of high-dose flu vaccines than last year for the most vulnerable Ontarians, including seniors, bringing the total order to 1.2 million doses. Joining Libby to discuss, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and Dr. Isaac Bogotch, infectious disease specialist at University Health Network's Toronto General Hospital. Australia is having um, a a tougher-than-expected influenza season. What's interesting about Australia this year is that the flu season started earlier than expected. It actually started a couple of months earlier than expected. So one of the unknowns is, you know, is this really a tougher flu season than usual? Or is this just a flu season that started earlier that will also end earlier? And at the end of the day, it will have the same rough number of people infected. So those are still unknowns yet. But kudos to the uh, Minister of Health for having the foresight to say, we don't have the answer to that yet. This has the potential to be uh, a tough season in, in Canada. Let's be prepared. Let's get more uh, flu vaccines available, especially for vulnerable populations. One of the things that's interesting to me, and I'd like to bring in Dr. Iris, she says, so I've, I'm seeing an extra 300,000 doses of high-dose flu vaccine, but it seems to me, I don't know if this is as a result of foresight, that I think last year was the first year that it was approved, not that it was approved, but that it was covered uh, by OHIP, so people uh, could get it for free. And I think there were some supply issues for it. So maybe this is uh, just what was planned. Do you have any insight into yeah, that? Yeah, so I'm a GP. And I can tell you from the perspective of primary care, this is where you generally get your vaccination or at the pharmacy. So, so they would come in for the high dose. And initially, I was only given a very limited number of doses. So you would think, I don't know, 50 or 60 doses would be a lot. In my practice, it was gone within three days. So that's a major problem. So patients were coming in to get their high-dose influenza vaccination, and it just wasn't there. So there were problems in the supply chain, which hopefully this year will have been worked out. In all fairness, anything that we do as a medical, scientific, public health community, as a government, anything that we do, any policies that we take to make it easier for people to get the influenza vaccine, I think that's a step in the positive and in the right direction. There is, uh, you know, some issues with what, what we call vaccine hesitancy, and it has some other names as well. And that's a, that's a huge problem. And we know influenza, there's this big mis- misconception, around, uh, misconception around influenza. People think it's just a cough or a cold. But no, influenza is a very severe viral infection. It's not the sniffles. It's not a cough. It's not a cold. It's a very severe viral infection. And we know globally, every year, it kills over a half a million people. 
over a half a million people die of influenza every year. So anything that we can do to reduce the risk of death or disability from this, uh, we should. And, and a huge component of that is vaccinations. Of course, we know vaccines aren't perfect, especially the flu vaccine. We know some years are better than others, but we still know when you like, sift through all the data, and there's tons of data, uh, if, when you sift through all the data, you can see that overwhelmingly, people who get the flu shot do better. People who get the flu shot have a far less probability of death uh, compared to others. And, uh, and, you know, by having more high-dose vaccines available this year, great. I totally agree with Dr. Bogosh, and I have to add, if you take a look at those deaths, who's dying? And we know that 70 to 90 percent of the deaths are in individuals over the age of 65. That's the Zoomer population. And if you take a look at hospital adjacents, we're talking about 80 percent over 65 account for the hospitalizations. So the majority of deaths, the majority of hospitalizations are coming right from the Zoomer population. It is imperative to get the flu shot and ideally the high-dose flu zone. Dr. Ivers, what would you like to leave us with? Quick message. Once we're on the topic of vaccinations, two things. Think about your shingles shot. Because if you look at the burden of disease, shingles is like almost number one out there. The chances of getting that are very high. So Shingrix, good thinking. The other thing is don't forget your pneumonia shot. And just to confuse matters, there's actually two pneumonia shots out there, the Prevnar 13 and the Pneumovax 23. So talk to your doctor about those and make sure you're vaccinated. Okay, Dr. Bogosh? For anyone listening who is hesitant about getting an influenza vaccine, you should really get it. It will help. It certainly, there's just overwhelming evidence that you will have a much less, uh, there's much less of an opportunity for you to be hurt by the influenza virus. So get your flu shot. Dr. Isaac Bogach, infectious disease specialist at University Health Network's Toronto General Hospital, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Al in Scarborough phoned to offer his advice to reduce flu transmission, especially in hospitals. I think what we should do is stop that foolish handshaking and adopt the hand bump. I was at Scarborough and a man flushed the toilet, walked out of the stall. I was just leaving and I saw him stop at the lunch counter Uh and shake hands with two other people. And I'm telling you, stop shaking hands, adopt the hand bump, and we'll avoid a lot of the flu. Maria in Toronto called with her approach to being a safe pedestrian. It's responsibility of me as a crossing the road, as well as a driver, we have to make sure that it's safe to, to, to cross. Even though I have a green light, I want to make sure that I catch a driver's eyes before I cross safely. But a lot of people, they just think that it's green light, so I have a right to go. So it's, it's, no matter how slow the car is going to go, it's going to still kill if the person is not safe. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Linda, who listens to Zoomer Radio in Buffalo, New York, and says it's tough waking up in America these days. It bothers me that people do not take the time to find out the proper information. And they listen to this man who is like a Pied Piper. And he portrays himself to be honest, and yet he's told more lies than five presidents totaled. You know, I hear people call, and I'm going to sure you're going to have callers after me going, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, yeah, I do. All right, because I, I read and I get informed, and I don't take the first thing that's out there um, for, verbatim. Um, and, and that's what I ask people to do. And what's a shame is people, whether you're Democrat or Republican, the atrocity that is going on in, in this United States, not only with the immigrants, not only with women that were elected by Americans to run into Congress, to be their voice, all right, the, the, the border situation, Anything that this man has touched, he is killed. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow at the same time when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer.